Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen concludes her two-part conversation with psychotherapist and author Dr. Tina Payne Bryson about the power of showing up. Hello, everyone out there, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Buckwalter, joining you from Chaddock, and I am super excited to tell you a bit about the guest I am interviewing today. Today, we will be speaking with Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. She's the author of Bottom Line for Baby and co-author with Dan Siegel of the New York Times bestsellers, The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline, each of which has been translated into over 50 languages. She's also written Yes Brain and The Power of Showing Up. She is the founder and executive director of the Center for Connection, a multidisciplinary practice in Southern California. Dr. Bryson keynotes conferences and conducts workshops for parents, educators, and clinicians all over the world. And she often consults with businesses and other organizations. She's an LCSW and a graduate of Baylor University with a PhD from USC. And you can learn more about her at tinabryson.com and we'll be sure to let you know other places you can find her at the end of the interview. So just a bit of how I got the idea to, to reach out to Dr. Bryson. I've read her previous works, but the latest book that I read of hers, The Power of Showing Up, had such an emphasis on attachment and how attachment impacts parenting and child development that after reading it I just thought I have got to get her on the attachment theory and action podcast if at all possible and I am delighted that she agreed to join us so stay tuned Dr. Bryson will be with us in just a second hello everybody and welcome back to the attachment theory and action podcast for my part two interview with Tina Kane Bryson. We're talking about one of several of her books, The Power of Showing Up. And so Tina, we uh, talked so much last time about the simplicity of this, but yet, you know, there, there are lots of things that can come in to prevent this. Um, we also talked about um, our own history and there's two things that I want to really focus on in this part of the conversation. One is your four S's, which are just so great. It's such a way of boiling all of this down in a way that takes it from really complex uh, terms and science to, to something we can really remember. And then I also want to say this one thing that that you talk about more than once in the book, that history is not destiny. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I think let, let's let's just first uh, talk about the S's. Um, yeah. That is just uh, that's just so meaty and good and helpful and clear. I just love how you put that all together. Well, you know, 
Dan and I both love research so much, but neither one of us wanted to be researchers because we wanted to get the science to people. And, uh, you know, I think there are amazing people who do both. And I love the research. I still always feel a pull to do research, but I think for me, what, what, lights me up the most is thinking about how do we take what we know is so important and get it to change people's lives. And so the four S's is basically, for me, it's my North Star because any situation, whether it's my clinical work, my role as a wife or as a mom um, or as a boss, I, um, I run an interdisciplinary you know, mental health clinic. Um, so all of these things take me back to the four S's. So let me just hit those quickly. We could yeah. spend hours on it. Yeah. But the four S's really are when we break down, what does it look like to provide secure attachment, right? What is that? What do we do? How, how do we? Okay. So yeah, we've got the idea of presence, but how do we actualize that? Right. So the four S's are meant to really, and, and by the way, I teach the four S's to, um, um, I'm getting ready next week to go to teach them to, um, camp counselors that are in their early twenties and teach them how to do this, you know, as childcare providers and influencers in kids' lives. So it's very accessible. So the first one is safe. And safe is, as you know, really one of the most crucial parts of what the purpose of attachment is. It's a, it, it is to protect from harm. That's really yes. what we mean when we say safe. Um, and I, but I think there's a couple other um, pieces here because a lot of times, you know, parents in particular are pretty good at protecting their children's physical safety, right? They watch yes. them near water and they put car seats, you know, they use car seats, et cetera. But a lot of times parents aren't thinking about what is it that we do that can, and I think this is so important for clinicians to hear because all the work you do with parents um, in that that role um, is that we often do things in our relationships as parents, as spouses, et cetera, even as clinicians that really um, undermine or um, break the feeling of safety. And some of those things are to become unpredictable ourselves. So as parents, you know, that might mean yelling at your kid or having a rupture in the relationship therapeutically or those kinds of things. And the key here is that um, the research is so hopeful and really clear that it's okay to have ruptures. It's okay to have conflict um, and and to mess up even as long as we make the repair. And that when we make the repair, here's what I love about this. Okay, so you're going along in your relationship, whatever it is, there's a rupture yeah, and it doesn't feel good to either person. Okay. So Correct. then you can go into shame spiral and, and all of that, but that actually takes us even further out of being able to reconnect. Um, yeah. So instead um, what we can do in those moments is to apologize, to reconnect. And what's amazing about that is that even though there's an unpredictability in that moment, that feels not safe because the brain hates unpredictability. Predictability makes our brains and nervous systems feel safe. So when there's a break in that, we act in ways we typically don't, or there's a rupture conflict. Um, There's an unpredictability there, but if we always make the repair, then the other person says, okay, this doesn't feel very good. There's a messiness in this in relationships. I don't like this right now. I don't like that person right now. And I know they're going to come make it right in a minute. So there's mm-hmm. actually what we're doing, as long as we make the repair, those ruptures themselves can be relational resilience building because yes. then there's the sense of the relationship isn't over if there's conflict, because I know yes. it's, we're going to make things right again. 
It's yes. really key. Yes. And I think another thing that's really important here that can go up through the generations as well is to um, see that when we do have ruptures with people we care deeply about, instead of going into that shame spiral, we really can see those moments as an opportunity or an invitation to ask ourselves, what is it I needed in that moment to be the person I wanted to be in that moment? Or what is it that got in the way for me? You know, and as a parent, you go, okay, what got in the way for me to be kind and loving in that moment instead of screaming at my kids? Well, it might be because I haven't peed by myself in two years and I'm exhausted and I'm hungry and my own physical needs aren't being met. And that's the meaning of that. But other times it might be like, gosh, I notice I get really reactive whenever my kid rejects me. And I wonder what that's about. And we can move into curiosity that allows us then to do more making sense of our own story and the legacy of our own relationship. So I think those safety ruptures really can be really great opportunities for us as well to be working on our work. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So, the, yeah. so the, the big practical take home for safe is first of all, think about your office or your home or your relationship as being a safe harbor. So no matter what storm is happening in the world or inside of the other person, that them coming to be in, in contact with you in your presence, um, that that is regulating their physiology, their heart rate slows down, their muscles relax, they feel safe. Um, and they know that, that there's always this harbor from whatever's going on. And then the second part is when that feeling is not there in the relationship, we connect and we make the repair. Yes. Yes. Um, that repair is so important because we know we're never, and you, you make this very clear in the book and any parent already knows this, right? We're not going to get it right. 100% of the time. Never. Yeah. So not even close to a hundred percent. Yeah. 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 So the, so the second S is seen and seen is, I think probably the hardest one of the four S's because what it does, what it requires is that we look at the mind behind the behavior. Mm-hmm. We're tuning into the, the what's happening in, in the other person's internal landscape. Yes. And when someone has behavior that's reactive or attacking, we can easily jump into a defensive attacking state because our neuroception for safety can get uh, can get violated. Right. So we have a neuroception of threat and then we go into more reactive defensive strategies. So this requires really tuning in to what's happening inside or, or doing what Dan Siegel calls helping them feel felt. Yes. So, and I think, you know, one huge thing that comes up for me clinically when I'm working with parents is that they often don't know how to hold a boundary for behavior and help the child feel safe and seen. Uh-huh. So, you know, one, one example I like to give is, you know, as my kid is screaming and tantruming because he doesn't want to get out of the bath that I say, it's time to get out. Either you can get out or I will help you out. And if he says, I'm not getting out as I lift his body out of the tub. So I'm holding a boundary, which makes, which means I'm being predictable and helping him actually feel safe. I'm holding that boundary. I'm lifting him out of the tub. This is where I practice scene. I say, you're so mad. You have to get out of the tub. You really wanted to stay in. So it's really about having my response match with empathy, you know, my, my empathic response match his internal state. Now, if I instead say here, so here are examples of not seen, why are you making such a big deal about this? 
right? So if we say something like that, or here's a really, here's a really common one. Um, I don't want to hear it. Keeping in mind that our children internalize that statement. I don't want to hear it. That means I am not the person you can come to when you're falling apart, when yeah. you're at your worst and you're having, you know, big emotions. I don't want to hear about it. You go deal with it on your own. And, and we do that with like, go to your room. And when you're ready to be nice, you can come back out. These are things we, that are very much part of our culture, but that really undermine attachment and it really undermine, unless there's a repair um, and really undermine that, that feeling of being seen um, and being known. And the long-term goal of that, what, regardless of the kind of relationship is for the other person to say, and feel after repeated experiences, not perfect ones, but repeated enough to say they really got who I was and they cared about me or loved me for who I already am. Um, they didn't try to change who I was in terms of, you know, they, they allowed me to become as opposed to telling me who I needed to be. Yeah. And, uh, and the way we get there is by in that moment, that presence that we talked about last time and really just tuning in and, and really naming. And it's not, it doesn't have to be about a lot of talking. In fact, if the person's reactive, a lot of talking is going to be counterproductive, but really just saying, I've, I get you. I, I hear what you're saying. Um, and then when we can give words to it, that can also be really beneficial as well. Yes. Yeah. I think it's uh, such such an important point that you bring up about there's confusion that I can't have empathy, but also set a boundary. <laughs> it's very right. either or in people's minds. So if I'm going to have empathy, that that means just abandoning like what we were going to do or setting a limit or in, in that way, then that creates another problem, right? Yeah. And, and the idea yeah. that we can do both, like you said, with your example, um, yeah. even though you do have to get out of the bath, I get, I, I hear however yeah. you want to say it. You are not liking this. This is upsetting to you. Yeah. I think this one's really hard and it's very hard for me. I work on it constantly because we, you know, it's so easy to just get stuck on the surface level. It's so easy to get stuck in the behavior and re reacting to each other. So yes. like those who do couples work or who might be able to identify with this in your own relationship, you know, my husband and I have been married 27 years and I still, um, you know, we can get into these conflicts where we're arguing and we're just arguing about, well, that you, well, you just said this word. Well, but you, it's because you did this and we're never, and we just are totally, you know, and I'm a trained mental health professional who understands all this attachment and still that's the pull is yes. to stay there. Um, but really if one of us, and he's just as good at this, if not better than I am, can stop and tune into what the other one's experiencing, we can just not have to stay stuck in that unpleasantness. We can really yes. get like, I remember one time my husband and I were arguing, um, our, our oldest was about to turn 16 and he had saved up all this money for a car and we had told him we would match it. And, um, so he had this kind of pot of money and we were going to, um, we, we were going to buy him, um, something with that money and surprise him. And I wanted to spend more than what we had originally agreed to because I wanted him to have safety features that he couldn't afford with what he had saved. And so my husband and I, he was like, well, you know, he needs to have the lesson of, you know, what he saved is what he saved and we're, we shouldn't, you know, whatever. And I was like, yeah, but I really, you know, I think we should do it. It'll be a surprise. And, and eventually my husband said, I feel like there's something else going on here. What, 
what's happening? Like, what, what are you feeling right now? And just him asking me that question made me be able to connect with something I didn't even realize in the moment. And I began to cry and I was like, I'm scared about him driving. Yeah. You know, I didn't, you know, I don't, this doesn't feel safe to me. You know, it's scary. And when I could get there, then he could understand how important the safety features were to me. And I could really get in touch with what was really happening inside of me. It wasn't about the money. It was about, I was afraid. And so right. I think that's so important is to get past all the behavior and all the words. Yes. What is this person feeling? And yes, with that. Yes, absolutely. So what about soothed? The soothed. third S. Well, you know what? If you practice seen, we can get to soothed a lot more easily. And soothed is really about co-regulation. It's, um, it's about um, helping, nurturing, and comforting. Okay. So typically when kids are physically hurt, their parents are pretty good at this, um, but not in emotional distress. And it's just really interesting to note that the part of the brain that gets activated when we're in physical pain is the same part of the brain that gets activated when we're in emotional pain. And so I think that's something really good to think about as our clients come into our offices is to think about they, they are in pain. Right. Right. And, um, and so soothing is really about, saying to them okay so the example of the um my kid you know not wanting to settle down for bedtime because he was so angry and to say i'm I, you're i can see you're, this is so hard for you i'm right here with you that i'm right here with you or i'm here just that and our presence is soothing so we don't have to sometimes do a lot more this is not about fixing right this is about right. I'm walking, you know, one of the final lines in the whole brain child that Dan and I wrote is it's not our job to fix or prevent our children from dealing with difficult things. It's our job to walk with them through it. And so a lot of soothing is really about just showing up with our presence in that moment, sometimes not even saying anything, just sitting uh -huh. with it. Um, okay. And other times it can be saying, how can I help? Or we will figure this out together or even physical comforts. Um, you know, our nervous systems respond really well. Many of you experienced this during the pandemic. You wanted fuzzy, comfy pants and, and slippers, and you wanted fuzzy blankets and comfort foods. You know, um, uh, physical comforts are a huge part of, of comforting us uh, when we're infants. And this, this is the same as adults as well. So it's really about helping nurturing and helping them move from these difficult places back into a regulated re regulated state or even just being held by someone else's mind you know just saying i'm here with you we'll figure this out together and i think this is super important right now as we're in the place we are historically with the pandemic and that is you know there, we've gotten so much threat messaging constantly for over a year now instead of safety based messaging and i have a whole video about that on my website about how to do that with kids but I think that um, we really want to come into our relationships, particularly if we're in a helping role, whether that's as a parent or as a clinician, with a culture of competence and confidence, which is really the idea of I've got this or I will figure this out with you. We can do this because that promotes so much safety and soothes the nervous system when we're walking into unpredictability. So as kids are going back to school in the fall and as things happen, um, as we're you know emerging socially, um, someone saying, 
we'll do this together or we'll figure this out or I've got an idea. You know, these kinds of things can be really helpful in in um, in that soothing. And then the final S is secure. And secure is not about self-esteem. It's not about feeling secure about yourself, although that is an outcome of secure attachment. It's rather that the person has had enough repeated, unperfect experiences in relationship with you that their brain has wired to know that if they have a need, you will see it and show up for them Mm. and that you will help them feel safe and seen and soothed. That's it. That's simply it. And what's more important even than that is that then they learn how to show up for themselves. They learn how to keep themselves safe. They learn how to see and understand themselves and they learn how to soothe themselves. And that's of course what we all want for our children developmentally as they you know, launch into independence. But I think that's such a beautiful model for our clinical work as well. That if our clients feel safe and seen and soothed, they're gonna learn how to do those things for themselves. And so they get that internal or you know, the, the internal working model um, of security. And so security is really about being confident. You know, what we, what we see in the AI narrative that you believe that people will show up for you. You believe that you can count on people to see and respond to your needs. And the way we get that is through imperfect, but repeated experiences of feeling safe, seen, and soothed. So for me, it really is, I know I keep using the phrase, my North star, but it's always the right answer as a clinician. If I'm like, am I helping this person? Am I doing, what's the right course of, of what we do next, um, in my relationships with my friends and my spouse, my mom, and as a mom, that can all always be okay. Where am I, what am I going to do in this moment? How am I going to handle this? Okay. Safe, seen, soothed, secure so that they know they can have that um, safe, seen, soothed and secure. Yeah. So, so that they know that I'm here, I've got them, um, together. Yes. And so, you know, as we wind down, I want to touch on that history is not destiny. And I, I, I want to look at it at a couple angles. Um, one, I think one of the main ways you're mentioning it in the book is, you know, what what happened to you and how your experiences and your attachment classification, your internal working model is malleable and it, it can be impacted and changed and you can be available in a different way for your children. But I was also thinking as you were just talking, you know, you talk about this book being for, you know, anxious parents who are worried that they're not doing it right. Also for parents who um, are uh, kid have kids in crisis, um, new parents, um, and, and people, and and even people who maybe haven't been there in the past. So you know, I was kind of thinking about history isn't destiny. If somebody is listening and thinking this is not what I've been doing, yeah. and now you know I'm reading in the book you know, what wires together, fires together. And and I feel like I haven't developed these neuropathways for my children that Tina's talking about, like they might not feel like I'm available. So I think, you know, just that can all be wrapped up in that statement, right? Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons I love attachment science so much is because it's full of so much hope, right? We don't have to be perfect and all of that, but what we really mean in the, in that phrase, history is not destiny is exactly what you just said. It means that no matter what legacy we come from,
from, we can we can we can be able to be in relationship with people in secure ways by making sense of our own story, right? So we don't have to do what our parents did or or what other kinds of relationships we've been in. But it also means it's never too late. It means that your history as a parent or your history as a therapist or your history as a wife or a husband or a whatever uh, or a friend that no matter what has been even earlier this morning or over the weekend or last week or last month or for the years that we can begin to make a change right now. And because our attachment patterns are based on repeated experiences, when we begin to change the kinds of experiences people have in relationship with us, their attachment patterns begin to change. And our attachment patterns begin to change as we start making these shifts as well. So it's never too late. And especially in, you know, in in childhood and adolescence and young adulthood, the brain is so plastic. So, you know, if you have a child who is 20 and you're thinking, oh man, I've really wish I had done this differently. It's not too late. It's never too late. Start helping your child feel safe and seen and soothed and secure. And if you're in a clinical relationship where, you know, you you feel like things aren't really going that well with your client, you can really go back to these basics and start building from there. So I think too, it's just, it's so exciting to think about how, um, as we begin to change, the brain changes, right? So we're really making a difference. So it's it's just really full of hope. Yes. You know, I just think this is so important. And I so appreciate your own vulnerability about the things that you work on. I just recently finished a series. Of, I, I do um, this kind of work called The Circle Way. And um, I had created a circle for... Uh, therapist's parents, I call it TAP, because I do think, and, and I'm, I'm bringing this up now because uh, we have a, a, a lot of our listeners are therapists or clinicians, yeah. and I think there's this special kind of, I say, this special kind of guilt if you're a professional in this field and then you're struggling with your own children. Yep. Yes. <laughs> in, my parenting, in my parenting groups that I run, um, a, a huge portion of them are therapists and there's so much guilt because we feel like we should and know shame and shame. So shame. Yeah. Yes. And one of my favorite things to say about this, Karen, and I'm so glad you're supporting the, the, um, us as a population. <laughs> in this way. One of my favorite things to say about this is, look, we should have regret um, about how we parent at times. We should look back on things that we've done or thought and, and, and feel icky about it because if we're not feeling that it means we are not in touch or or doing any kind of reflecting with ourselves mm. and it also means we're not growing and evolving and changing like if i read my middle school diary and thought wow that's really mature and insightful what would that say about my development as a 49 year old right right so i think that we really need to go okay when we feel that pang of regret or guilt and be like i can't believe i i just did that i can't believe i talked to my child in a way i would never let anyone else talk to them or i can't believe i'm so i yell so much um is really like once we get there and we see that to go okay um the fact that that doesn't sit right with me means I'm thinking about it. I'm reflecting, I'm growing, I'm changing, I'm learning. And now what am I going to do to, to make a shift? Hmm. So for me, that feeling of, of shame and regret and all of that, um, 
means growth is happening and reflection is happening. And both of those are required for us to be able to provide secure attachment. I also find that the parents that that are the hardest on themselves, um, like when parents come to me and they're like, I'm worried I'm not providing secure attachment because typically if you're worried about not providing secure attachment, you're probably doing a really good job of providing secure <laughs> attachment. So um, I think that's important too, is that we really need to normalize those icky feelings that we have as, as evidence of really good, important things. And we all feel that. Yes. Ah, what those words I think are born to the soul of many. I, I wish I could, you know, reach through the zoom screen and give you a hug. (laughs) Such a great message. You know, Karen, one other thing that I love to tell parents, and I think it probably applies to therapists too, although I've never thought about it is to say to parents, what your child needs most from you is you flawed you, imperfect you, sometimes the storm instead of the safe harbor you, but you. And I think that takes us back to where we started in the last episode about, it's really about the power of showing up and our presence. And that just being in relationship in a way where we're trying um, is profoundly healing. And I know many of you know Bruce Perry's gorgeous work, um, which is about how the most powerful therapy is love and connection. And so, you know, it just, we can really distill it back to just some of these basics. Yes. Yes. Well, everybody listening, the power of showing up and it is just fantastic. It is such a good book. And as well as your other books, what is the best place for uh, folks to, I mean, obviously we can buy books on Amazon, but you know, is, is there a website or other things that you're doing that you want people aware of? Just, we, we need the, the, the Tina Payne Bryson commercial right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My website is Tina Bryson.com and that's B-R-Y-S-O-N. And you can find me on um, social media as Tina Payne Bryson. Um, And my website has tons of free content. um, And I do parenting groups. And at some point I'll go back to doing a professional study group on interpersonal neurobiology again, but um, I'm, I'm in the trenches of parenting. And so I'm, I'm really limiting my, my clinical work and my other work so that I can be present because we can't do it all at once, right? Um, yes, and that's really another important, important message, right? There. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Well, thank you again so much. It's been such a pleasure to, to spend this time with you. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.